Well, I, I wanted to start this morning by asking what personal prejudices that you may have that could be stopping you or impeding you from sharing the gospel with somebody. I remember years ago when I was at the post office, there was a guy there that any question or issue talking about God, you could just see his face get angry visibly right before you and you thought he was about to explode and you knew his heart was just so hard. The question is, is it so hard that the word of God could never penetrate? It felt like it at times. Maybe it's something that's happened in the past to you. A family member has been abusive and that hurt is still so fresh, so sharp, and you carry it with you. In fact, it's really defined the rest of your life. Sometimes we may not even be aware of it, a blind spot in who we are. Something about our upbringing, a part of our cultural DNA that makes it almost impossible to see beyond. Change is hard, especially when it involves deep-seated prejudices that are baked into who we are, baked into who our culture uh, is. Now, I, I don't know about you, I don't know if you know, but before he became a peaceful demonstrator and, and changed the face of India, a young man by the name of Mahatma Gandhi uh, was practicing law in South Africa. He was attracted to Christianity. He was attracted to the teachings of Christ. And, and so he studied his Bible. He was seriously thinking about becoming a Christian. And so one day he, he decides he goes to a worship uh, service in South Africa, as he's starting up the, the steps of this big church, a, a white South African, an elder in the church, no less, stops him from going inside. And when he's asked, what, you know, what do you think you're doing? Gandhi says, well, I just want to go to a worship service. To which the elder said, there's no room for you kafirs in this church. Get out of here or I'll have my assistants throw you down the steps. Well, you can imagine he never again decided to consider becoming a Christian. And he said, if it's going to be mean that I'm going to be part of this thing they call the church, I don't want to be a Christian. As we come to the word of God this morning, we see a similar problem arising in the early church. For centuries, the Jews had been part of God's special people. They were called out from the other nations to be living testimony of God's glory and grace. It wasn't that there was anything special about them, but that in God's infinite wisdom, he chose to show grace to them. They were the undeserved recipients of God's particular love. He chose to love them. And in being separated and consecrated unto God, they were to be God's instruments of salvation in the world. Again, not because of anything special about them, but that through them, God would provide a means of salvation. That's the ultimate outworking of the covenant God made with Abraham in Genesis 15 and 17, isn't it? That God would bless the nations. To emphasize this unique relationship of being separated and consecrated unto God, he gave them his law, which created a, a separation between the Jews and all the other peoples. The moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, he established his eternal holiness as a measuring stick of all of life. The ceremonial law 
which is a set of rules which uh, provides a mean for Israel to come unto him in godliness uh, to, to worship God. And in the civil law, there are rules for how Israel are to be governed, and that includes how they are to interact with the pagan uh, nations around them. So God erected barriers that were designed to separate his people, to mark them as distinct from the other nations. And with this, there was a real position of privilege. They were God's people. Now, I'm just going to start my PowerPoint here. Now, what does all this have to do with the scriptures that we're looking at this morning? Well, here in chapter 10, we see the next stage in the development of the gospel through the book of Acts. And we're going to see it actually go to the Gentiles. And Peter in the early church need to have God to enlarge their understanding of what it means to be a part of God's kingdom. He, they need God to break down their prejudices. In other words, God is bringing about the final fulfillment and unfolding of his promise that he had made with Abraham centuries before by extending his kingdom to include all the nations and by breaking down those barriers that once made Israel distinct. Does this mean that there isn't any privilege or to being part of Israel? No, but it does mean that Israel no longer has a monopoly on the saving grace of God. Now, over the past several months, we've seen the natural unfolding of the gospel, haven't we? Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus told his disciples that they would be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. It's like ripples on a pond as they go outwards. But we see the gospel going outwards to the Jews, the Samaritans, and now to the Gentiles. At every new stage of the advancement of the gospel, we see the Holy Spirit being poured out as a consistent confirmation that this is the work of God. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost to the first Jewish believers. In Acts chapter 8, the next stage of the gospel, the Holy Spirit again is poured out, this time on the first Samaritan believers. And now in Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit is being poured out upon the Gentiles. Each of these stages represents a fundamental shift in the object of God's particular love away from Israel to embrace all peoples, a reordering or a redefining of what it means to be a part of God's people. And this is where we start this morning with Cornelius's vision. chapter 10, verses 1 through 2. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God and with all his household gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. Cornelius was a Roman centurion, a commander of somewhere between 300 and 600 men, 
more importantly, we read that his family were devout, God-fearing Gentiles. This means that he went to the local synagogue for worship. He prayed faithfully several times a day. He was generous with his money towards the poor and the needy. And you know what? As best as he could, he tried to keep the Sabbath as a day of rest and follow the Ten Commandments as his moral law. Even as a Roman citizen, he recognized that the paganism of the Roman world was spiritually bankrupt, and he sought to worship the one true God as best as he could. In all ways possible, he lived to please God, but because he wasn't circumcised, he wasn't considered part of the Jewish community of faith. Then one day, as he was praying, an angel appeared to him and said, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. Well, as you can imagine, as a good soldier, Cornelius does exactly what he's told. He goes and gets his servants and he sends them out to Joppa to find Peter. Now, as much as the Jews hated the Samaritans, they totally despised the Gentiles even more, which brings us really to the heart of the problem today. If God was going to use Peter to take the gospel to Cornelius and his family, he'd have to first deal with Peter's inherent prejudices. In prejudice that how could an uncircumcised Gentile ever be a part of God's people. And that's why, as we read, <laughs> that at the same time God was speaking to Cornelius, God also spoke to Peter as he was praying on the roof. And, and Peter falls into a trance, and God gives him this vision, a vision that is sparked nonetheless by a sudden uh, pang of hunger. Chapter 10, verses 10, uh, 10 through 16. He fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Peter was a devout Christian, a follower of Christ, but a Jewish Christian. He had grown up with observing all the dietary laws, so when the voice commanded him to eat, you could imagine the shock and the disgust he must have felt. But God tells him three times, don't consider anything that I've made unclean or impure. And as he's contemplating what this all means, a knock comes to the door and he sees Cornelius's men and they tell him that his, their master has come to retrieve them so he can go and, and uh, share the gospel in Caesarea with the whole family. Suddenly, things just started to make sense to Peter. He probably didn't fully understand yet the, the full implication of what God was doing, 
but he certainly understand that God was teaching him that he needed to put away his prejudices and go and see these Jewish, or sorry, these Roman uh, uh, family. This is important because contact with the Gentiles was strictly regulated in the Old Testament. Uh, a Jew could do business with a Gentile under circumstances, but in no way was he ever to share a meal or to stay in their house. The Gentiles were considered unclean. And any Jew who did anything like that would then themselves become unclean. What's interesting is that God had already been working in Peter to reveal that under the new covenant, under the new covenant this wouldn't be the way. Associating with unclean things wouldn't make you unclean. Because several days just before this, we see that Peter's where? He's in, in the house of Simon the Tanner. And according to the Old Testament law, the job of tanning was considered unclean because tanners worked with dead animals. And here's the reality is that Peter wasn't worried about becoming unclean by associating with Simon. So God is already at work in Peter to start breaking down this reality that according to the law, there are, are some things clean and unclean. And now God wants to apply in a greater way, opening up Peter's understanding of who the gospel is for and sets down, lets down this sheet so for him to see. To make Peter fit for the next stage of kingdom service, God needed to, to deal with this inborn cultural prejudice that he had. God needed to widen his perspective of the kingdom of God by revealing the full extent of the grace and the mercy that is now being poured out because of the sacrifice of Christ. You know, in, in many ways, we're like Peter when it comes to the gospel. We may not like to think about it that way. We, we may not even see it in ourselves, but too often our understanding of the gospel is bound up in traditions and understandings, unbiblical ideas, or, you know what, just even sin. It may shock you, but I remember in the early 80s when the first people were starting to die of this mysterious disease called AIDS, the widespread understanding in the culture was that AIDS was God's judgment on the gay community. And to the shame of the evangelical church, there was this understanding that this was unredeemable. We look back on it now and, and we can't understand how we had such blinders on. These are people under, uh, under a disease that is threatening to take their life. They need love. They need the gospel. Have you ever heard of Ted Bundy? Well, he was a sociopath, a mass murderer, a truly depraved person who did unspeakable things to people before and after he killed them. In 1978, after confessing to the brutal murders of at least 30 people, and, and that's just the 30 that we know of, Dr. James Dobson visited him several times while he was on death row in Florida. And on one of those occasions when jo Dr. Dobson was there, Bundy professed faith in Jesus Christ. Can someone who's committed such heinous crimes ever be forgiven? Is there ever a point that God's mercy can't reach a sinner? 
Well, well, those were the questions that everyone in the church was asking at the time. How could he admit to these things so freely? And they were horrific. And many people were saying, well, his actions are unredeemable. But, but you know what? We, we do it in the church in much more subtle ways, too. I know several groups in the United States, uh, churches or associations whose theology is so restricted, so narrow, that unless you have uh, the same understanding, every jot and tittle aligned with their profession of faith, you're considered outside of the bounds of salvation. It just baffles the mind, the types of persecutions, there's the types of prejudices and blind spots that we have in our faith. Our prejudices may be things that we've been brought up with that define our understanding of the world. They may simply be cultural blind spots. But my question for us to think about this morning is, are there any prejudices and biases or impartialities that are hindering us from understanding what God wants us to do for his kingdom this morning? When Peter gets to Cornelius' house, they're, they're earnest, they're excited, they're exhilarated, they want to hear the gospel. And so what does he do in verse 34, when he sees the Holy Spirit comes upon them after hearing that gospel, he says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Peter understood God's salvation is now for all peoples everywhere. He understood that God shows no, per, uh, no partiality because we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. There is nothing inherently good or deserving about any of us. It is simply the mercy of God that any of us are saved. What's hindering us this morning from having a fuller picture of what God desires to do, of who God desires to save? What's obstructing our view of God's kingdom? What are our blind spots? People, people that we rub shoulders with every day that in the back of our mind, we say, well, God has just passed them over or they're unredeemable. Their hearts are just too hardened. Now, these are tough questions that we need to ask ourselves, but ask them we must because eventually we're coming out of this pandemic and we need to know who we are. What do we believe? Who is God going to save? And does God have a role for us in that? Now, I can't imagine what it must have been in the house of, of Cornelius as, as Peter was preaching to them. It, there must have been this wonderful expectation that hung in the air when he got to Caesarea. Not only had God told Cornelius to go and get the apostle, but he also spoke to Peter in a vision. This is special revelation. And he did so so that he could break down the walls of prejudice that would hinder the preaching of the gospel. So God is bringing together both eager hearer and eager preacher. And what a wonderful thing that was to see. And so he goes on, he tells them of Christ's time in the earth how God had anointed him, and how he administered to the sick. 
He tells them that the apostles were witnesses to the death and the resurrection, and that they are commissioned to preach that one day Jesus would return to judge the living and the dead. By no means does Luke think that he's, he's given us everything that Peter would have talked to him in, in the days that he was there. But there are some key things that we're told about that we need to wrestle with. First of all, in verse 42, the idea is that everyone who believes in Jesus receives the forgiveness of sin. This may sound new to, or may not sound new to our ears, but you know what, 2,000 years ago, this was radical. Salvation was no longer simply available to the nation of Israel because they were God's chosen vessel. Now all Jew and Gentile alike are justified by faith. And that's what Peter means when he says that God doesn't show any favoritism or partiality. He accepts all people because of the blood of Jesus Christ, those who fear him and do what is right. But the second thing we need to recognize is that is God is establishing the new covenant and in that, he's forging a new people, a people made up of Jew and Gentile alike, with the same rights, the same privileges, because we all come to him by the blood of Christ. This is really the, the second meaning of the vision of the sheet coming down of the clean and the unclean animals. You know what, here, Peter's repulsion wasn't simply that he could now eat anything he saw, it wasn't a repulsion that he could socialize uh, with Gentiles. And you know what? I don't even think he was surprised that God could make clean what was unclean. He was offended by the mixing of the two things together. If one was clean and one unclean, how could they both be considered co-equal before God? The issue wasn't simply that God could save and make clean but that they were both now equally holy, equally part of the same family of God, apart or regardless of the law of God. This gives, I think, new meaning to Peter's words, doesn't it? That God shows no partiality. As Lord of all, he accepts all people who fear him from every nation. God had told the Jews that he would receive all peoples and the gospel is first to the Jews, but now we see it being extended to include to the Gentiles without a change in the administration of the means of grace. And this is what shocks him. For Luke, this is sweeping away centuries of racial prejudice, national uh, privilege. This means that there is no separate plan for the Jews and a, a different plan for the rest of the nations. There is no special means of salvation, one of grace for the Jews and one of grace for the rest of the peoples. All peoples everywhere who come by faith are received as part of the family of God. Now, lest we think that this is unjust of God, that he's changed somehow the manner in which he's dealt with Israel. There's a, a spiritual principle that we see in Jeremiah 18 that we need to keep in mind here. God tells Jeremiah in the face of Israel's sin 
to go down to the potter's house and watch the potter work with the clay to mold it, to break it, to remold it again. And, and the spiritual principle is this, is this, is that God has the right to deal with, uh, uh, with any of us as he sees fit. The only restrictions that God can't violate is his character, his eternal, his eternal plan, or his promises. As long as he doesn't break that triangle of character, plan, and promises, God can deal with his people however he wants. And that's certainly not the case necessarily, what we see, because we know that Jeremiah 31 says that the new covenant is simply the outworking of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. It's expanded, it's redefined by the atoning blood sacrifice of Christ, but it doesn't violate the old covenant. It's the fulfillment of the old covenant. Now, I doubt that all of this was going through Peter's mind when he was preaching the good news to Cornelius and his family. But we do know that he understood and preached that everyone who by faith believed would be saved. And this must have hit home like a bolt of lightning in the ears of those who were assembled there. Forgiveness of sin is now available to everyone through Jesus. Peter, it seems, didn't get a chance to finish everything he wanted to say because we, we read immediately that the Holy Spirit comes down and that like at Pentecost, we see people speaking in tongues. Verse 45. And the believers from among all the circumcised who had come with people were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. This outpouring of the Spirit confirmed beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Gentile believers were now part of the family of God. And that's why the six Jewish believers who had gone with Peter, who were now so astounded by seeing this this outpouring of the Spirit, they had no reason why Cornelius and his family couldn't be baptized. They were coming into the family of God regardless of the Old Testament law. There is now no such thing as second-class citizens in God's new family. Now, as much as this was, this brought joy to the house in Caesarea and everyone was just excited. What do you think happened in Jerusalem? Chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. Now, in response to their skepticism and their prejudices, Peter tells them everything that's happened. He tells them of the vision. He tells them how God explained the vision. He tells them of the eagerness of, of the Gentiles wanting to hear the gospel. And all of a sudden, this amazing outpouring of the Spirit, the same Spirit that they had experienced. And in the face of all of this overwhelming evidence, all the believers in Jerusalem praised and glorified God because God's promise, repentance and forgiveness of sin and eternal life is now for everyone everywhere. The day that Peter saw his vision 
and heard that Cornelius wanted to see him changed his perspective on the kingdom of God forever. It, it changed his perspective on how and who God would deal uh, with the gospel. His cultural prejudices on how God, on how he expected God to work with people's lives and to bring about salvation were all of a sudden turned upside down, weren't they? But you know what? It, it's ju not just people who have spiritual blind spots. Sometimes churches can have prejudices and blind spots too. It, it stops us from seeing what God is doing. It stops us from seeing what God calls us to join with him to accomplish. And that's exactly what was happening in the Jewish, uh, with the Jewish believers in Jerusalem when they heard the news that what had happened in Caesarea. And it took Peter's testimony of what God had done to increase the vision of the whole church so that they could see how God was working his wonderful purposes out and how they were actually a part of it. I know one church in the GTA area, predominantly white church, they wanted to grow. They needed to grow. But when their pastor asked them, well, who lives in the area? Who can we reach out to? And are there any uh, people of, of uh, uh, other races and peoples around that, that we can reach out to? And their response was no. Well, there's no one around here. But when you go to the statistics, there's at least 15% are from South Asian background. There's 11% Chinese. There's 7% Hispanics. They just couldn't see beyond their own cultural reality of the people around them. Even if they were in the grocery store and they heard another language, it just didn't click in. Now, this isn't a prejudice per se, but it is a huge cultural blind spot, isn't it? It gave them tunnel vision for what God could do in their community. I think if you were to just take a few minutes this afternoon, just do this homework. You could probably come up with two or three names of people in our church who had a personal vision for what God can do in the kingdom that wasn't necessarily part of what we thought we were to do. But God used them to enlarge our vision of the kingdom, to enlarge our ability to be able to serve. Who were those people? Well, we could, saw, you know, how did we become so intentional in our missions program? You know, we have a very specific desire to reach the most unreached. And praise Lord and thanks to the missions committee, they stick to that. Who did God give a vision first to start the ministries of out of the cold, to help refugees through Adam House, or, or even to, you know, support our own Syrian refugee, Taima? You know, sometimes we have these blinders on and God enlarges the vision of an individual of what he wants to do in our community. And with that, it enlarges the vision of the rest of the church. Which of us this morning might be used of God next to move us down the track of our engaging in preaching the gospel with the lost around us? Our vision for the kingdom of God and the gospel in people's lives is only limited by our expectations of what God can do.
Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but throughout all of these verses, it's been God through the Holy Spirit prompting people to act, guiding things along the, the track of providential intersection, breaking down barriers. God is calling people to faith. And he's also calling people to proclaim the gospel to them. As we look at coming out of this pandemic one day, we need to ask ourselves, is our vision of God's kingdom big enough? What are our prejudices that are stopping us from reaching people who live next door to us? What are our cultural biases that are at play? Who are the people in our blind spot that we've not considered needing the gospel? And I pray that as we move forward, God will just take a hold of our hearts and, and rip free all of those prejudices, all of those biases, and give us a heart for the lost and the needy of our community. Let us pray.